0: So, don't go expecting me to. <laughs> Ken, if you'd like to jump up and down in the middle, you're more. <laughs> we won't ostracize you. We'll, we'll support you in that. <laughs> Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks uh, for being amazing. We thank you for being who you are and doing all that you do on our behalf. We thank you for a gorgeous spring day outside. And this gift of this opportunity to worship you once again in spirit and in truth, to share our lives with each other, to uh, come here and be able to feel your divine hug and and embrace. Uh, We love you so much and we thank you for loving us. We ask now that you would forgive us the sins we have committed, that you would cleanse our hearts and minds from all evil thoughts and distractions, that you would focus us squarely on your word, um, that you would speak to us a word of hope and power and promise, a word of transformation and joy and peace. Uh, You know where we are in our lives and what we need to hear and feel and sense. We ask that you would provide that to us today through your word and the sacrament of your supper. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. My sermon text for this morning is the first lesson, actually, from the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 55 through 60. It is the briefest uh, snippet of text if you will, and it's a a famous story of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. Uh, My sermon title for today is Last Man Standing. Last Man Standing. We have before us, in our first reading for today, the briefest section of text, which is really but the conclusion of a much longer account, which begins back in chapter 6. In the first verse of chapter 6, as the earliest disciples are growing in number, uh, and the church as we know it is just beginning to form really, the first growth pain occurs. Namely that the Hellenists complain against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Put quite simply, Jewish widows who spoke Hebrew and whose culture was thoroughly Jewish were being favored in this distribution of food aid over Jewish widows and perhaps a few recent Gentile converts who spoke Greek and whose culture was a mixture of Jewish and Greco-Roman. Favoritism based on racial, ethnic, or cultural identity has a long history obviously. Because of this earliest church dispute, a division of labor is first instituted. The original 12 disciples summoned the larger body of disciples and informed them, and I quote, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore pick out from among yourselves seven people of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What follows, of course, is the first selection of what would later be known as deacons, uh, that is, assistants in the church, who could help in running more mundane administrative tasks, while others could be freed up to focus on prayer and preaching and or teaching the Word of God. The wisdom is obvious, no one person or one group of people could do it all, Uh, so deacons or assistants are needed administratively so pastors and preachers can be freed up to focus on preaching, teaching, and prayer. The original twelve apostles choose seven to set aside to the role of deacon, of whom one Stephen is listed first in chapter 6, verse 5. He is described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. The other six include Philip, different from the original disciple of that name and after whom we are named, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, if I pronounce them all correctly. To consecrate them to the office of deacon and bless their ministry, the original 12 pray and lay hands upon them. We know next to nothing about the other six, but the story quickly focuses on Stephen. Lest we mistake this earliest deacon for merely an administrator, merely a waiter of tables, chapter 6 informs us that full of grace and power, he did great signs and wonders among the people. When others would dispute with him, furthermore, Scripture relates they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So, fascinatingly, Even though his original assignment is literally the administrative task of food distribution, the biblical record only records a ministry much more in line with the original twelve who appointed him, namely preaching God's word and doing signs and wonders, that is miracles, among the people. So even within a purposeful division of labor here in a necessary hierarchy, God's spirit and God's power can overflow in such a way as to blur the line sometimes. Stephen is so powerfully and obviously anointed with the Holy Spirit that he almost immediately gets himself in trouble. In a scene extremely reminiscent of Jesus' experience and trial at the hands of the religious authorities so Stephen too is seized and brought before the Sanhedrin or High Council and false witnesses are arraigned against him as he himself now goes on trial. The formal charges against him are identical to those leveled against Jesus, perhaps just a few years earlier, namely preaching against the temple, the holy temple located there in Jerusalem, and against the law, the law of Moses and the customs of the people. His trial begins at the end of chapter 6 with his face or his countenance resembling that of an angel. The vast bulk of chapter 7 here is his verbal defense before this council, the high priest, and a gathering of the people. His words herein constitute actually the longest recorded sermon in Scripture outside the Gospels, and even then only by Jesus himself. Isn't it intriguing that a deacon, a waiter of tables, gets that honor of the longest sermon in Scripture? Stephen, in his defense, recounts the history of the Jewish people which he and his opponents can agree on, actually, and only earns the ire and wrath of his accusers in verse 48 when he turns his critical attention to the temple. He says therein, The Most High God does not dwell in houses made with human hands. Before before then, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, Heaven is my throne. God says, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Where is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Herein, Stephen begins to pick a fight, really. Make no mistake about it, his opponents could clearly cite many biblical verses to support the opposite, that God desired and even commanded a house or dwelling place to be built for him there in Jerusalem. Now we, as later day Christians, look at this passage and say, what's the big deal? We know we don't have to have a temple and the sacrificial system which goes on inside it. We know that the place of worship is less important than the state of the heart of the worshiper. But then again, how would you react to someone today who counseled tearing down this church and every other church the world over? because the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made with human hands. Rather, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. You can see how such logic is troublesome, controversial, and leads to no good end. If that weren't bad enough, Stephen goes for the jugular in verses 51 and following. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did they not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, meaning Jesus now, whom you have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. Suffice it to say that those are not very endearing words. Verse 54 relates, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and ground their teeth against him. That brings us up to our text this morning, which is, as perhaps you can guess by now, the account of the first Christian martyrdom, that is, the first time a Christian dies for their faith. And once again, a deacon, a waiter of tables, is chosen. Verse 55 in the text this morning relates that Stephen at this seminal moment is filled with the Holy Spirit, that he gazes into heaven and sees the glory of God. Look, he exclaims, I see the heavens opened and Jesus at the right hand of God. His opponents cover their ears. With a loud shout, they rush together against him. They drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. Irony of ironies, a man named Saul is not only present here, but also in some sense presiding. This, of course, is the man who will travel to Damascus uh, in short order to engage in the same type of persecution before being knocked to the ground, blinded by a great light, have a converting encounter with Jesus Christ, and become the famous apostle Paul. So the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist of all time, author of over half the New Testament, presides over the death of the first Christian martyr. While they are stoning him, Stephen echoes Christ's last words from the cross. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, or as Jesus says it, into thy hands Lord, I commend my spirit. And Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Or again, as Jesus says it, Father forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he dies. To a large extent, Stephen dies for being anti-temple, for declaring that God no longer, if he ever did, dwells in a temporal, finite space built with human hands. Indeed, we Christians believe something curious about the temple or the place where God dwells. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, you may recall, the curtain or the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain was the one that sectioned off the Holy of Holies in the temple, that innermost sanctum where the Ark of the Covenant resided containing the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Atop of which, actually, in between two cherubim was the so-called mercy seat, where God was believed to actually have sat when His glory was visibly present. So when that curtain was torn into, we believe the presence and the reality of God no longer confined even to that holy place, but instead, as a result of Jesus' death, was now everywhere, giving every believer unhindered access of His or Her own. In 50 days after Christ's resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, Scripture says that God's Holy Spirit was poured out upon the original apostles, and indeed it filled them up. St. Paul later wrote to the Corinthians that they, as human believers, were now God's own temple and that God's Spirit dwelled in them and that therefore, therefore they were now holy. He next wrote to the Ephesians, that the house of God, quote-unquote, was built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, and that they too, as believers, were built into it for a dwelling place for God, and that the whole structure then becomes a holy temple of the Lord. And finally, Peter wrote in his first lesson to remind his audience that they as Christians are built into a spiritual house of God, listen to this, as living stones. So if you want to see the true temple, the true house of God, don't look up or down or at these walls of brick and mortar and concrete and steel. Rather, look to your left and look to your right Look at the person beside you. Look at the person in front of you, behind you. Look to the people gathered on this Zoom screen. Look at the person in here you love the most. Look at the person in here maybe you can't stand. You and they are living stones of God's temple And house. The Holy Spirit of God now dwells, rests, and lives inside of you and of them. And together, assembled, we are a holy house of God. The Spirit of God is no longer confined. Indeed, it is worldwide, billions of believers strong. This story is told about a man who went out to give a piano recital. When he got done with what was an apparently stirring rendition of material and a breathtaking performance, he got up and went backstage. After a couple of minutes, those in charge came back and got him and said, you've got to go out for an encore. They're giving you a sustained standing ovation. The man went to the edge of the drawn curtains, pulled one side back just slightly, enough to peek through at the crowd. He came back and told them, I'm not going back out there. They responded, that's ludicrous. They're all standing, yelling, bravo, encore. The man replied, not all of them. They went and peeked out themselves and came back and said, what are you talking about? Absolutely everyone is standing with the exception of one small elderly man in the balcony, and he's probably too frail to stand. The man responded, that's not just some small elderly frail old man that's my teacher and I don't play for the crowds I play for my teacher my friends we as Christians don't play for the crowds we play for our teacher we don't perform for our audience we serve for our Shepherd we sing as the old gospel song says not for ratings show or applause but we sing because we're happy we sing because we're free god's eye is on the sparrow so i know he's watching me now having said that if i were to ask you where jesus christ is today in his person right now at this very moment I'm pretty sure you would answer to me in the words of the apostles and Nicene creeds, one of which we recite weekly here. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The reason the creed says that is because in numerous New Testament passages, Jesus is referred to as seated at the right hand of God the Father. Indeed, he is always referred to as seated at the right hand of the Father. But my question for you today is... Is that where Jesus is in this text? Is he in fact seated at the right hand of God? Look at verses 55 and 56 in your bulletin. Look at verses 55 and 56 in your text. 55 and 56, Acts chapter 7. Is Jesus seated at the right hand of God? No, he's what? He's standing at the right hand of God. My friends, the crowd throws stones and Jesus stands. The crowds are enraged, grind their teeth, cover their ears, scream and drag him off and the master stands. His enemies seek his death and the Savior rises from his seat. Stephen is not playing for the crowd. He's playing for his teacher and his teacher stands. When you stand for truth, my friends, truth stands for you. When you stand for justice and what's right, justice and what's right stand for you. When you stand for grace and mercy and forgiveness, grace, mercy, and forgiveness stand for you. When you stand for unconditional love, unconditional love stands for you. In all of Scripture, it always, always, always refers to Jesus as seated at the right hand of God. But here, here, He's standing to honor someone witnessing and testifying to the truth. Even though the penalty is death, the very creator of the cosmos rises in respect for such a life. The very ruler of the universe rises for a personal standing ovation. When others persecute you and seek to do you harm, and you pray, forgive them, Lord, and receive my spirit, know that the teacher stands. When others seek to stone you, metaphorically speaking, you know that you are a living stone whose cornerstone, whom the builders rejected, rises in its place. You might have entered this text this morning thinking of Stephen as the last man standing due to his circumstances, but he's not. Jesus is always the last man standing. You came in here this morning with mixed feelings with a heart full of different concerns and a mind troubled with various anxieties but God sees you God sees you struggling He sees you holding out as best you can. He sees you trying to do the right thing and He stands. He stands for you. He sees you speaking out for those who are poor and oppressed. He sees you Uh, admiring, uh, advocating for those who are marginalized and disadvantaged. He sees you taking an unpopular stand for righteousness. He sees you responding to judgmentalism with compassion. He sees you speaking for those who have no one to speak for them. He sees you daring to hold on to hope in a hopeless situation. Daring to have faith in a world full of doubt and fear. Daring to love when it is rarely received and almost never returned. And he stands He stands. He stands stands for you. Jesus is always the last man to stand. Please rise as you're able as we join together in singing our hymn of the day, Just As I Am.